Hey friends, thank you so much for joining us on the Abbey Podcast. We are working to help you notice and nurture the work of God in your life, in the life of others, and in the world around you. One small thought we'd ask you to keep in mind is that our teachings, our conversations, and the stories that we tell are primarily meant for our local faith community in Columbus, Ohio. We're happy to share this with you as a gift, and we hope that it could serve you in some way. Thank you so much for being here. guys for being here. Uh, It's good to be together this afternoon. If you are new with us, um, I would love to say, please let us know that you're here. We have a way for you to do that um, on the website. You can just send us a note, and we would love to know that you're here, and we'd love to follow up with you if you'd like that. And um, my hope is over the next, you know, six to 12 months, we'll have a few groups for you to to join and maybe kind of orient around some community in that way. And so we'd love to make you aware of things that are happening in the life of our church. So we just want to welcome you. Um, so um, about four years ago, my, my grandfather, uh, my father's father, uh, was in the hospital. And he had been in and out of the hospital for a number um, of occasions over the course of a month. And on this particular occasion, um, kind of a couple days turned into like three or four days. And the frequency with which my own father began to update me on my grandfather's health, began to increase. And maybe you guys have had this experience where a loved one is in the hospital, and the text messages kind of become more frequent. Uh, and the medical like jargon becomes more obvious as well, right? And that is demonstrating concern. And on this occasion, um, that was happening, where my grandfather was in the hospital, and my father's frequency of updating me had increased. And so... Um, I was thinking that, that maybe he was in some pretty bad shape. And um, the reality is, is I actually wasn't very close to my grandfather, um, but this was my dad's dad. And so I became concerned and I began to feel a little anxiety that maybe um, this was in fact sort of the end of the road for my grandfather. And so I was kind of carrying that kind of anticipation of the potential of that news when my father called me uh, fairly early um, on a weekday morning. And um, my mind was really in the possibility that maybe my grandfather was passing away. And, and my dad said this. Um, I, well, I picked up the phone. I said, hey, Dad, how are you doing? How are things? And my dad just simply said, well, uh, Grandpa went home today. And um, it seemed to me that the anticipation that I was feeling about my grandpa's death had, in fact, come true. And, and so I asked my father, well, like, how are you doing? And he's like, I'm, I'm okay. And I, I was beginning to sense that maybe my dad wasn't feeling like the gravity of the loss. And maybe he was in some sort of shock. And, and my dad's not really one to be forthcoming with his own emotions. And so I began to probe a little deeper to see if maybe, like, this was a moment that I could be present to like deeper emotions of my dad. And I began to inquire more, and we had a couple of volleys back and forth, and I got the sense that my dad was actually really just okay. And I hung up the phone, and I began to realize that this is odd. I'm wondering why my dad isn't feeling this more acutely. And I went on to a busy day, 
And for the rest of the day, I, I couldn't help but think of the kind of disconnect emotionally that I was feeling. And I spent most of the day kind of thinking, um, how do I be a good son in this moment? And I, my plan was to call my dad the next morning and to just simply ask him, how can I be of help to you? Are there any things that I can attend to around this? And so I did. The next morning, I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, I'm just, I'm just checking in with you. Um, and uh, just kind of wanting to know how you're doing with all of this. Um, and he says, no, everything is, is fine. Everything here is fine. I was like, okay. Well, Dad, do you need any help with, like, any of the arrangements, you know, with Grandpa? He's like, well, um, you know, Grandpa's at home, and the nurses are going to come and check on him tomorrow, and I'm going to go and visit him over the weekend. And I had this moment where I began to realize that I was really confused and slightly embarrassed at the fact that when my dad said that Grandpa went home, what he meant was he went home from the hospital. So for about 24 hours, I thought that my Grandpa had died, and in fact, he was at home watching reruns and eating popcorn, okay? So here's what I um, want you to notice. Do you notice how I brought my own narrative to the story? I brought my own kind of anticipation to what is a metaphor. Um, he went home uh, is, is a shortened version of the longer version, which is still very short, but he went home to be with the Lord is sort of a metaphor in the way in which we talk about something that's really difficult, namely the process of death and dying. He went home to be with the Lord. And I brought my own kind of anxieties and fears into the hearing of that metaphor, and what I thought that my father was saying was, in fact, not what he is saying. And so I want to talk with you this afternoon about bad metaphors, good news, and perhaps a more beautiful story than the one that you have heard up until now. Um, so here's the thing. I am going to spend the next year in our life together as a community I'm sharing with you the good news of Jesus. I'm going to share with you the gospel, and we're going to take 12 months to do it. And I think it's going to be really helpful for all of us to recognize that you already are bringing in a narrative to the story. You're already bringing in some conceptions that, that we all have like in our mind, these conceptions about when we hear someone say that they're going to share the gospel of Jesus... If you have uh, grown up in the church or you've been breathing in America over the past half a century, what you know to be true is that there are several metaphors out there for what we mean by the gospel, and those metaphors are likely playing a role in your imagination even when you may not realize it. Does that make sense? Um, so we often think about this like plan of salvation, these metaphors that we use as a shorthand to try to get our mind around what is this book and what is it saying and, and how is it the case that me believing something about a first century Jewish peasant who became a famous rabbi in the first century, how is that meant to impact the way that I live in the 21st century? Has anybody ever asked yourself that question or is it just pastors that, that do that? 
You don't ask that question? Yeah, you ask that question. How is it that me believing something about this first century rabbi is meant to radically impact my life 2,000 years later? Um, and you've probably also heard that it has something to do with what happens after we've gone home to be with the Lord, but we won't really get to that part of the story until the spring. So we're just going to have to be a little patient, okay? So I want you to think with me at the beginning about all of the different metaphors that you may have heard when you think about the gospel story or the good news. Uh, You may have heard something about, about sin and separation from God. And you would be right to think that that is part of what the story is about. Um, But you've also maybe heard something about Jesus being a bridge between us and God, and now we have our first metaphor. It's the bridge metaphor. That there's something that happens in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that creates a bridge between us and God. And the metaphor goes on to say that if you believe that this is true, that your relationship with God is restored. There's a There's a bridge that connects you to God. Um, Or maybe you've heard another metaphor, a story about uh, legal proceedings. There's a law court metaphor that you may have heard. And here's how the law court metaphor goes. Um, uh, The law court metaphor is that you have committed a crime and that you're standing trial before a judge who is God and that there is a right and just punishment that is due to you, and uh, the punishment is quite severe, actually. That there's a punishment that's due to you because you have sinned, and that you fall short of the glory of God, and in fact, the judge is, is so sort of disgusted by the sin that the judge can't even look upon you. Anybody ever heard this before? And part of the metaphor goes on to say that at the last moment, right before you are kind of sentenced, that Jesus steps in and says, I will take the punishment for you and for you and for you and for you and all of you. I will take the punishment upon myself. And somehow, the metaphor goes on to say, is that the the sort of anger and the wrath of the judge goes on to Jesus and it sort of skips us. And that we're allowed to go free because Jesus has paid the price. Anybody ever heard this more legal metaphor? Okay, this is one of the metaphors that is really in the air and in the atmosphere of North American Christianity. And the reason that this metaphor exists, and there's a particular version of this metaphor that was popularized by a preacher named Jonathan Edwards. How many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards? Okay, Jonathan Edwards... um, was, was quite a wonderful man who I know from just reading his writings that he had a deep love for Jesus and an experience of God. And he was part and parcel of the first great awakening, uh, both in America and in England during the 18th century. So between 1730 and 1740, uh, Jonathan Edwards and John Whitfield and Jonathan Wesley preached the good news in this kind of revival kind of way And millions of people came into relationship with God. One of the sermons that did the heavy lifting is uh, a sermon, a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. How many of you have ever heard this sermon referenced before? And the, the, the depiction that Jonathan Edwards gives is that sinners are loathsome spiders dangling 
over a fiery pit waiting to be released by God the judge into the fiery pit. And so, the first great awakening is really the bedrock of North American evangelicalism. So, in some ways, we are the recipients of that first great awakening, and in some ways, we're the recipients of that particular metaphor. And so, when I say to you, hey, I'm going to share the gospel with you, for many of you, even when you don't even realize it, these are some of the metaphors that are stirring around in some of our minds. Um, you may have heard of the metaphor that depicts Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of, of the world. And it's in this metaphor where many of our songs and many of our hymns come uh, written about the blood of Jesus sort of cleansing us from unrighteousness. And listen, um, uh, you could go and you could do a wonderful Bible study and you would find the, the blood of the Lamb all throughout Scripture. And you would find that Jesus actually himself sort of leans into this lamb metaphor on the eve before his crucifixion in the feast of the Passover, which is celebrating the Exodus occasion. And the Exodus occasion is when God passes over the houses of the Israelites because lamb's blood has been smeared on the posts and over top of the doorway And Jesus kind of leans into this metaphor when he says to his disciples, and he reconstitutes the meal of Passover around himself, he says, this bread is my body and this cup is my blood. And so you're going to find the metaphor of the sacrificial lamb going throughout Scripture. So here's the thing. The challenge with all of these metaphors is that at some point, they begin to sort of crumble. They begin to sort of fall apart because it's actually not a simple story that we find in this book. It, it seems simple because we've tried to make it so with these sort of shorthand responses. But when you realize, for example, that um, the sacrificial lamb metaphor uh, was was really referring to kind of Old Testament kind of sacrificial system. And there was never a case where the sins of the people were placed on a lamb and that lamb was sacrificed to God. In fact, the sacrificial system is really about the lamb being sacrificed as a gift to God. And you begin to read maybe deeper into the Old Testament and you're like, wait a second, some of these metaphors they begin to not make quite so much sense. I know for me, one of the things that began to chip away at the reality of some of the metaphors of the gospel that we use is becoming a parent. And I had this moment as a parent early on where I began to realize I don't have to punish my kids. Like, I don't have to punish them. You, parents, you guys know that, right? Like, You don't have to punish your kids. They can do something wrong, as kids do, and you can just forgive them. You can just, I I forgive you. And so what began to happen in my life is I began to sit with this reality that I myself, broken and short-sighted, 
am constantly forgiving my kids and not extracting some sort of punishment from them. And I begin to wonder, why is it that I've been taught that God requires a punishment for the sin? Does this make sense? Slowly, some of the metaphors begin to unravel. Maybe some of you have uh, heard of C.S. Lewis, and you've seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in a film or uh, on the stage, or for those of you that are wonderful people, you've actually read the books. They're really worth reading, by the way. Um, uh, and you may remember that little Edmund, who is you and I to a T, by the way, tempted by Turkish delight and wooed and seduced by the evil Queen Jadis. And because Edmund is a traitor and he's made some sort of pact with Jadis, that there's like a bounty on his life. And that Aslan and Jadis go off into the distance and they have this little conversation. And, and basically they make a deal. That there's some sort of deep magic in Narnia that says that if a perfect representation takes the place of someone that's messed up, that everything can be made right. And you flip forward a couple pages, or you fast forward a little bit in the film, and what you find is that in the next scene, Aslan himself is laying on a stone tablet. His mane has been shaved off. He is tied to that tablet, and all of the little minions and monsters of the Queen Jadis murder Aslan instead of Edmund. It's a metaphor, isn't it? And you step back and you begin to think, okay, there's this like deep magic at work in Narnia, and how does that deep magic actually work in my life with Jesus? Is, is there something to the fact that I believe something that happened in the first century, and then there's magic that happens behind the curtain, and somehow I'm made right with God? Well, for me, that has felt unsettling because we use magic to describe things that we don't understand. And so at the core of how I'm orienting myself in the world is based on magic? It's confusing. And so over and over, some of these metaphors begin to sort of like fall apart. And listen... um, I want to say that, um, and, I, and I know I talk about this often because this is what's happening in our culture. If you're paying attention to the life of the church, if you're talking with people about issues of faith, if you're trying to introduce people into the life that we have in God through Jesus, what you will find is that we are living in a time where the metaphors are breaking down for people. And people are losing their minds. People are deconstructing all of these metaphors, and it is a heartbreaking experience. And so if you find yourself in that situation, here's the the thing that I would love for you to sort of consider over the next 12 months. It's this. Is it possible... That the thing that you are losing, the thing that's breaking down for you, is the metaphors. And might you consider what it could look like for you to re-entertain the person of Jesus and the story of Jesus that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's what I want to spend the next 12 months unpacking for you. Because the, the question 
that I want to pose to you and to our community is not do you understand these metaphors and can you get behind these metaphors? The question I want to pose to you is have you met the person of Jesus? Have you met him? And, I'm, and I don't mean like in your mind. Like I mean, have you had an experience and an encounter with Jesus who is resurrected and alive? That's where we're going over the next 12 months. So our task for this year is to sort of reconstruct our lives around the story of Jesus and the stories that he tells and the announcement that he makes that the same God that created the universe wants to make a home inside of every single person on this planet. You included. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That God wants to meet with you. So, you may have noticed up here I have two chairs. And I want to share with you, you might call it another metaphor, but I'd prefer to use another sort of idea. Um, I want to share with you sort of a representation of, of the gospel, of the good news, using these two chairs. And I came across this kind of sort of way of sharing the story by an Orthodox priest um, by the name of Anthony, uh, Anthony Carbo is his name. And Anthony Carbo um, has used this metaphor to maybe more closely describe how some of the, the early church fathers and mothers would have described the good news in the gospel. Um, and I, I learned it from a man named Brad Jerzak. Uh, Brad Jerzak uh, is a theologian who has, actually has a very similar sort of trajectory in life that I've had. He, he grew up kind of fundamentalist, evangelical. He pastored for many years in a Mennonite church that had a kind of a collision in the 90s with um, the vineyard folks up in Canada. And so Brad was loosely affiliated with uh, the Canadian Vineyard Churches, and for the past decade has been making his way towards the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Um, and that's not to say that I'm making my way towards the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and I'm not bringing you into the Eastern Orthodox tradition, but what I would say to you is that as I've been reading more broadly, theologically, and as I've been dipping back into the early church fathers and mothers, there's something in me that's coming alive around the good news of Jesus. And so I'm just following my heart. And so I've been reading a little bit of Brad Jerzak, and in fact I'm leaving in a couple weeks to go study in a master's program for a couple of weeks uh, with Brad. And so um, the analogy that I'm going to share with you with the chairs, um, I learned from Brad who learned from Anthony Carbo, an Orthodox priest in Colorado. Does that make sense? So I'm going to share the gospel with these chairs in two ways. The first way is going to be very quick, and it's going to be a representation of that more legal and judicious model that we, many of us, have inherited. Um, and the second version, so the, first, the, the legal model is really rooted in this idea that, that you and I deserve punishment, and that unless something or someone is punished, on our behalf, we must face the punishment for our sin. That's the kind of legal model. There's also another model of understanding the good news, and it would be based more on a therapeutic model or the analogy of a hospital. And on this model, sin is a disease that's infecting every person. 
And the way that Brad would put it is that you can't spank the flu out of a baby and you can't imprison someone until their cancer goes away. That's not how it works. And so what we need is we need a healer. We need a great physician to come and heal our sin. And this is the model that I want to talk with you a little bit about. So here, the first model, I have this white sparkly chair with, you know, spilt things from our dining experience here. Uh, But this is a white, clear chair. And here we have this darkened, rusty chair, and that represents humankind, okay? So here's how it works on on the legal model. On the legal model, God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them into this beautiful, the garden, and you notice how the chairs are facing one another, and there's harmony, and there's relationship as it was meant to be, but then something happened. God placed a tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was always meant to be a gift to his people. It's just that his people decided to snag the fruit of that tree a little too soon. And they went after their own way, and so they sinned. And not only did they sin, but they became sinners. And in this legal model, uh, the story would go on to say is that God then sent them out of Eden, and he put a gate in front of Eden so that they could not come back, and that there was this separation between people and God. And one of the things about this legal model that's really important to recognize, and we're not going to spend a tremendous amount of time doing it, is that as you go on, over and over and over again, God tries to make a covenant with his people, and his people are constantly doing this. We don't want that kind of covenant. And and you kind of get the sense is that God sort of turns his back on his people and then eventually changes his mind and says, okay, let me try with Abraham. And Abraham has a, a, a sex slave, Hagar. Uh, he's got a promise in front of him to be fruitful and multiply. And instead of waiting on the promise of God, Abraham tries to have a baby in a way in which God did not really intend. Right? And God's like, okay, well, I guess that's not going to work. And we come to Moses. And over and over, what we see is that people and the people of God turn their back on God, and God, the tradition would say, the metaphor would say, cannot look upon sin. How many of you ever heard of that? That God cannot look upon sin. And here's how we get that kind of theological framework. You ever wonder where that comes from? It comes from Habakkuk. Half a verse in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is is kind of pleading to God and complaining to God and says, God, you are holy and just and righteous, and how can you look upon us as sinners? But here's the real sticking point, is that the rest of the verse effectively says this. So why do you? Why do you look upon us? How could you, being so perfect and right and holy, look upon us dirty, grimy, you know, dust of the earth as sinners? And you'll see these. I, I literally saw like a meme, because I was like doing some searching for the, ser- for the sermon, where there's this, there's this meme. 
Is, is that what they're called? Am I cool enough to say that? Okay, so there's this meme that, that shares that verse. And then I'm thinking, wait, do you, do you turn this over? Do you get to see the other side of it? Because the, effectively, the rest of it says, so why do you look upon us? Anyone that says that God cannot look upon sinners doesn't really believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. How much time did Jesus spend with sinners? Like most of His time. Jesus had no problem looking at a sinner dead in the face with tremendous love and affection. God can look on sin, and He can look on sinners. And so the challenge with the, the sort of legal model that we've kind of some of us have grown up in, or maybe you've, you've heard, is it sort of pits God against people. And the model goes on to say that what happened at the cross is that God's solution to this problem was to send a perfect representation, to send a new Adam into the world, to be for us what we could not be for ourselves. And then here's what happened. We killed him. And all of the wrath and all of the anger on this particular metaphor and model got put on Jesus. And then we hear Jesus from the cross. His arms are stretched out wide. And what does He say? He says, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And so then what we do, what we've done is we've built a theology that says that the Father looked upon the Son and poured out His wrath upon the Son and forsakes the Son in place of us. That's the model of the legal model. But again, we just have to keep reading. Because he is saying the first part of Psalm 22, which is a beautiful depiction of the Messiah coming and being crucified. Literally, I mean, this is a prophetic psalm that says that they pierced him for his transgressions, that they pierced his hands, and they, they pierced his side. But the rest of the psalm goes on to say, and we would put these words into the mouth of Jesus, that in fact, the Father does not turn His face away. Verse 24. And so this idea that the sin, in the, or the, the sin is placed on Jesus and the Father looks at the Son and, and, and turns away from the Son because He cannot look upon it, and all of the wrath goes there, and that there's this division and separation is problematic. Here's why it's problematic. It also put, it pits God against God. It, puts, it, it pits the, the Son against the Father in this sort of like battle and this division. And let me tell you, there's, there's no deeper theology, theological work of the church that has fought against this idea that there is a separation from the Son and the Father. They are co-equal along with the Spirit. God cannot be divided. Okay? Okay, now everybody take a deep breath. All right. This is a model. It's a metaphor. And I'm telling you, I, my hunch and in, in my thought and prayer is that more people are struggling with their faith because of the metaphors than because of the real story. And I want to share with you the real story because I believe that the gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
It's the story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So the first story, the second story begins much like the first. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created Adam and Eve. And they put them, he put them in a beautiful garden and they were running around naked and it was wonderful. And there is a couple trees in the garden. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a tree of eternal life. The tree of life that leads to eternity. And something bad happens. And there's temptation. And by the way, the reason that there's a tree is because you, can, you cannot have love without choice. You guys know that, right? It's like, oh man, God, if you just like wouldn't have put that tree in the garden, like everything would have been fine. Well, no, you have to have choice in order to have love. And so there was a choice that Adam and Eve had. Will you follow the way that God has put in front of us, or will you turn and do it yourself? And so Adam and Eve turned away from God. They took the tree, and what does God do? He comes looking for them. Hey, uh, what's she doing? Um, what, what is the stuff over your genitals? It looks like a fiddle leaf fig. Um, what's going on? Well, we're naked. Well, who told you that you were naked? Well, she did it, and he did it, and now there's this whole blame and shame kind of thing. So what happens is that God went to come looking for them, and then he did something else. He sends them out of the Garden of Eden so that they don't eat from the knowledge of eternity, from the knowledge of life. They don't eat from the tree of life. If they eat from the tree of life, their condition is kind of like solidified. He actually sends them out from Eden as an act of generosity, and then what does he do? He goes with them. How does he go with them? He clothes them. He covers up their shame from one another. Some of you are already smiling. I'm just getting started. This is a much more beautiful story. He goes with them. Adam and Eve, they have a son, Cain and Abel, two sons. And Cain is in the business right now, at this very moment, he's plotting to kill his brother Abel. What does God do? He comes looking for Cain. Cain, what are you up to? Nothing. Are you sure? Cain, sin is crouching at your door. You better be careful. Please don't do it. Cain does it anyway. He kills Abel. What does God do? God comes looking for Cain. Cain, where's your brother Abel? Oh, I don't know. It's not really any of my business. Actually, it is your business. You did the thing, didn't you? So God sends Cain away. Um, and he sends Cain away east of Eden. But what he does is he gives Cain a mark on his forehead, a patriotic mark, a, not a patriotic mark, a patriarchal mark. God forbid. <laughs> a patriarchal mark across his forehead so that no one can touch him, so that Cain is protected. Now Cain goes on to, to found a complete... Uh, generation and society that's based on this murder, but God goes with Cain. And so next we have Abraham. God promises Abraham, I'm going to create you a, a, a vast nation. I'm going I'm to multiply your generations. And Abraham and Sarah are, are getting a little impatient. So what does Abraham do? Abraham takes his sex slave Hagar 
And he tries to make the promise come true in a way that God had not intended, and he turns away from God's plan. What does God do? God comes to Abraham and says, you know what? I'm going to bless that slave woman, and I'm going to bless her descendants as well. And by the way, I'm going to give you your baby of promise anyway. Sarah's pregnant. Next we have Moses. Hey, buddy. I know you've had a hard start to life, but we're about to go get our people back. Moses takes things into his own hand. He grabs the jawbone of a donkey and he kills an Egyptian. And God's like, come on. Like, we're not doing this yet. What does God do? He goes looking for Moses in the wilderness and he shows up in the burning bush. And he, he says, my presence is even here. He says, when you're ready, let's go get our people. He comes to David. And, and, and David, it said that David was a man after God's own heart. That there was, you know, David wrote all of these psalms as a shepherd. He's playing his harp. We, we meet David as a young boy and he's anointed. He's a man after God's own heart and they're in fellowship together. And we can read in the psalms how intimate of a life that David had with God. And yet, David also had a heart for women. And so he glances off the rooftop and he sees this woman bathing naked on the rooftop. Her name is Bathsheba. And David turns from God. What does God do? He comes looking for David. And he turns to David and he says, hey, um, this was not the way that this was supposed to go. David goes on to murder the woman's husband because she becomes pregnant. And God says, you know what? We're going to work with this anyway. That little boy is going to be Solomon and I'm going to fulfill the promise of your kingdom through him. And the whole line of Solomon ends up giving us the Messiah Jesus. We come to Hagar. Hagar is a prophet. Hagar says, God, your people are just being so disobedient. They keep messing up. Um, You should punish them. Um, God, they're, they're destroying the planet that you've created. They're they're doing weird things with their bodies. They're, they're, um, they're not being kind to one another. God, you should punish them. And Hagar's describing a situation like this. What does God do? God comes looking for His people and He says to Hagar, you know what? I can't do it. I love Him so much. I'm actually remembering Israel like a little baby. I just remember how wonderful it was. Here's what I'm going to do. is I'm going to make this situation right. I'm going to do the heavy lifting. And at one point, uh, the prophets describe this situation. I think it's Isaiah 59, where God basically says to the prophet, is I'm going to roll up my sleeve, and I'm going to extend my right arm to my people, and that right arm is the Messiah. Guys, this is the Old Testament. We haven't even gotten to the good news yet. But it's all throughout the story. So we get to Jesus, and Jesus uh, comes across this little man, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a swindler. He's probably trying to compensate for the shortness of his stature. He's, he's doing some really wicked things. Not only is he helping the Roman government by collecting taxes from the Jewish people, but he's doing it in a way that especially lines his own pockets. He's become wealthy. He's lost his family. He's lost his status as a friend. And so Zacchaeus is like one of these people who turns 
his back upon God and his people. And what does God do? He finds Zacchaeus under a tree. He goes looking for Zacchaeus. Hey, man, I'm going to come to your house tonight, and you and I are going to be buddies. We're going to be friends. And over dinner, dinner conversation, Zacchaeus decides to give all the money back to the people he swindled, and then to give all uh, half of his profits, I think, to the poor. And Jesus says, oh, salvation has come to this house today. The entire household is saved. We meet um, a woman. We meet a woman who uh, is divorced. Not once, not twice, not three or even four times, but five times she's divorced. What does God do? He comes to a well and He finds her. He looks for her and He says, you know what, I think... I think I might know what your problem is. I think you're thirsty. I can give you something to drink that will quench that thirst, and you will never be thirsty again. Would you like to hear more about it? And they have this little dialogue, and she ends up running away from the well, and she goes back into Samaria, and she tells her whole village about this encounter that she has with Jesus. She becomes Saint Fatina, who later was martyred under the emperor Nero, for preaching the gospel in Samaria. Um, over and over and over again, we have these stories uh, where we see that, that God is after His people. He keeps looking for His people. Uh, we see a man who cannot walk. He's probably a paraplegic, and in that first century context, the idea that you couldn't walk meant that you were cursed by God. That's what it meant. Now, we, we know from, I think, John chapter 9 that, in fact, that's not how it works. Um, someone comes to Jesus and says, hey, here's a blind man. Who sinned, him or his parents that would make him blind? And Jesus' response is actually, it, it doesn't work that way. But we have this story where there's this man who cannot walk and everybody around him would think that he is cursed of God. And he has some friends who've heard about a really beautiful story that's unfolding with the person of Jesus. And so they find out that Jesus is in a house, and they climb up on the roof of the house, and they lower this guy down. And what does God do? He looks him right into the face, and this is what he says. He's thinking, everybody thinks this guy is cursed of God. So what I'm going to say is this. Your sins are forgiven. And everyone's like, well, I mean, like, anybody could say that. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, of course, anybody could say that, but I'm going to do something more difficult to prove that I can do the lesser thing. Take up your mat and walk. And the guy kind of stands up and he rolls up his mat and, and there is this kind of meeting of God and this person, and everyone around can see that God is about finding people who everybody think is cursed and making it better. He's bringing healing both to the guy's soul and to his body because he is the great physician. Are you guys still with me? I've got a couple more. Can I keep going? Okay, there's a woman who is caught in adultery. She is caught in adultery, and in fact, it's a setup because they're setting Jesus up. 
And always the question is, of course, where's the man? We don't know. But they've set this woman up and they bring her out naked in the square to entrap Jesus. And she's caught in adultery, which is punishable by death by stoning. And the Pharisees look at Jesus and says, well, the law says that we should stone her. What do you think? And you know what Jesus does? What does He do? He comes and He finds her. And He kneels down next to her and He takes a knee in the soil and He begins to write in the dirt. And all of these people, one by one, begin to disappear. And He looks at the woman and He says, where are all your accusers? He says, they've all left, Lord. And He says, no one is left to condemn you, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I always hear that as, I'm giving you new life. You don't have to go back to that dude who is nowhere to be seen anyway. But Jesus does not condemn the woman because Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to heal and to save the world. Um, we, We read about a man that is so full of demons. His life is... His life is so broken that they've put him out in like the wilderness and they've chained him up to a cave so that he would have a little shelter and he's literally chained up naked outside and he's, he's like got a tremendous amount of demonic activity happening in his life and he is separated from God and from his people. And what does God say in the form of Jesus to his disciples? Let's go look for him. Let's go get him. And so they get into a boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee and they find the guy and the, and the Scripture says that the moment that Jesus' foot hits the soil, the demons begin to shudder. And they come and they touch this man and they cast out all the demons. He's able to speak again and they release him from his chains and they put some clothes on him. And the guy looks at Jesus and he says, hey, I, I just, like, I want to follow you now. And Jesus is like, no. Why don't you just stay here and tell everybody about what you've just seen and what's just happened to you? Here's a story about a father that has two sons. The younger son says to the father, I kind of wish you were dead. I'd really like my inheritance. I'd like to go make a life for myself. I'm tired of living on your land, in your house, on your estate, would you please give me my money now? Which is like saying, I wish you were dead. So, he goes, and he spends all the money, and he gambles, and he finds himself in a really hard spot where he can barely eat, he has no work, he's out of money. And you would think that the story is that God would turn away from such a person. But in fact, the way that the story reads is that the father is scanning the horizon of the land waiting for the son to return. And one day, the father hears rumor that someone has spotted the son on the outskirts of town, and it says that the father kind of girded up his robe, and he began to run to the edge of the town. Now listen, Middle Eastern men did not run. This is a big deal. This is an honor culture. Little boys ran. 
men did not run. Why is he running? Because in the tradition, in the Jewish tradition, if you dishonor your father and you try to come back, the entire town will meet you at the town gate and they will let you know that you are forever cut off. Cut off. The reason he's running is he's trying to get there first. And so, the guy turns, turns and the father runs to the son and he embraces him into his arms and he hugs him and he kisses. He says, I am so glad that you've come back. Welcome back into my household. Here is a ring for your finger. Here is a coat for your back. And we have a feast planned for you. God is always looking for His people. That's the Gospel. He's always looking. 100% of the time, He's looking. About seven... (laughs) 17 years ago, I was 24 years old, and I had sort of had it up to my eyes with God. All the metaphors had fallen apart for me. Um, I was not experiencing the presence of God. Nothing made sense to me anymore about the faith that I brought into my adulthood. And so on uh, a college campus at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I sat on a park bench and cried my eyes out, and I said to God, I'm out. I'm no longer in this. If you've ever saved me, you're going to have to do it again. Because nothing makes sense to me. And if this is the kind of God you are, the kind of God that is so petty that somehow the 60 or 80 years we spend on earth determines our eternal state, and if someone doesn't find you prior to dying that they will spend eternity apart from you, not just apart from you, but consciously suffering, I'm done, is what I said to God. I'm, I'm done. I no longer believe in you. I do not want relationship with you. And what do you think God did? He came looking for me. And over the course of a year, like not only did he come looking for me, but he found me and he welcomed me back. And he slowly began to put the pieces back into my heart. And he began to heal my mind. And he introduced me to people that could heal the depths of my spirit through uh, a form of inner healing prayer that we ourselves practice at this church, which I'd be happy to share how you could get connected with that. God is looking for you. And he's looking for every single person that you've ever met. All of the time, constantly looking for you. That's the good news. And the way that he's able to do that is because he has embodied himself into this earth. But here's the challenging thing. Jesus came in the form of God, in the form of man, being both God and man at the same time, and we murdered him. Oh, man. We didn't catch it. We couldn't catch the storyline. We murdered God. What did God do from the cross? He opens up His arms and He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Over and over and over and over again, 
God is a God who says, I forgive you. So here's what makes this really, really good news. I mean, this is, if you think this is good so far, here's the best part. Is that when we get restored, when God finds us, and we get restored, uh, the Apostle Paul says that when we are in Christ, which means we orient our life around this activity of God as a reconciler, he breathes his breath in us, and he puts his spirit in us, and he comes and he makes a home inside of us. And you know what he asks us to do? Join me in the project. Let's go looking for people. And so when in the neighborhood there's conflict, what we do is we take the spirit of God that's inside of us, and we look our heads up and we say, God, I wonder what you're doing here. And God prompts some of us in our heart to say, Let's go get involved. When there's systemic injustice at work in the world, when the world is turning its away from the way of Jesus, when people are caught in addiction and poverty, uh, God is going to be looking for those situations. You guys know that. But the better news is that He's inviting you and I to join Him. We are now joined with the project of God. God is a reconciler. And so God says, hey, let's go do some work. Let's go get them. Let's go help. Let's go share good news in that situation. Over and over and over again, the good news is that God is looking for people. And He always has it in His mind to reconcile the world to Himself. This is a much more beautiful story, isn't it? So I want you to open up your hands. I know that was a lot to take in, but I felt like it had to go in one chunk. Come, Holy Spirit. Just sit with this for a second. I'm just going to take a few minutes. And I want to ask the Spirit to bring to your mind a time when God came looking for you. When has God come looking for you?
I love the way that Jesus shares the parable of the lost sheep. He says that the shepherd looks for the sheep until he finds it. What are some of the ways that God has been looking for you recently? Just in the small ways that we turn, how is God in pursuit of you?